Please be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father God in heaven, uh, we pray this morning uh, for our world. And uh, Father, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in this world. We pray, Father, for uh, the Ephesus Protestant Church. And we pray for the uh, New Covenant Church of Ephesus. Father, we pray that these uh, small communities of believers in what was once a vibrant haven of Christian belief would stand strong in their faith amidst the persecution that rages in their country. We pray, Father, that they would stand fast on the truth that they would dig into the scriptures and root their feet there, that their hearts and their minds would be in the abode of Christ above by your Spirit, that they would be empowered by your Spirit to be lights and witnesses in a sometimes very dark place. And we pray, Father, that their boldness would not be lost Father, we pray um, for the Arab uh, populations uh, of Iraq, and, and we ask, Father, that you would begin a gospel movement or, or extend a gospel movement amongst those people, that they might know the truth of Jesus Christ, that truth which once flourished in that land as well, but the witness and the hope of the gospel was stolen. But we know, Father, that even still you have a remnant, and so we pray for those believers, though they might be scared as they worshipped uh, earlier today, or maybe are still coming to worship, though they may be nervous about um, who may know that they are followers of Jesus. We pray, Father, for those uh, Iraqi, particularly those Iraqi Arabs who are contemplating faith and following in Christ. But they're being held back by the concerns of this world, by the persecutions that they fear and fret. Father, would you grab their hearts even today, even this morning, this afternoon for them to say whatever this world may bring, I will live for Jesus. Father, would you give us a measure of the boldness of our brothers and sisters who live in such difficult places by our measures to follow you and remind us that it is always difficult to follow you because you are the one who has said that we must die to ourselves to find the life that is in Christ. Would you make us into the people who day by day take up their crosses and follow? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue this uh, study in, in the book of Revelation that we started last week, and uh, which will take us through the beginning of summer. We'll take a, a pause there, and then we'll, uh, the plan is to pick it back up in the fall and, and finish out the book there. Um, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What might uh, Jesus say if he were here now, right in front of us, verbally, audibly, speaking a message to a group of people that counts itself as a church? That's a tough question, isn't it? Because if there's one thing we can say about Jesus, it's that he's always surprising. And that says more about us than it says about him. As God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent with himself. And during his earthly ministry, he uncompromisingly promoted the ethics of the Old Testament that he himself had given through his servant Moses. At times, though, his expression and application of that law surprised his audience. Some of us are more prone to be overprotective of a strict line of morality and ignore anything that we can't find on that line. And others of us are more prone to draw our lines with the fat, dull crayon. So that what's on and off the line is not very clear. But both approaches are inherently self-centered, aren't they? Because whichever approach we, we use, we, we tend to use it to arrive at exactly the morality that we ourselves are comfortable with. So then if we heard from Jesus, what would we hear? Would it be good would it be bad? Somewhere in between? That's the safe answer, right? But how good would the good parts be? How bad would the bad parts be? That's where we find ourselves in the book of Revelation. Last week, we, we covered chapter 1, the introduction to this book, which gave us this awe-inspiring picture of Jesus. It wasn't the Jesus of the cradle or the Jesus of the cross. It was the Jesus who had overcome this world 
who reigned as Lord and King over time and space. The Jesus who was coming in judgment. And we get this picture because the Father gave the Son a vision, and the Son gave it to his angel, and the angel gave it to John, and John gave it to us. And when John encounters Jesus in this new way, very different than the Jesus that he had ministered alongside for, for three years on earth, he is given instructions to write the vision down to seven churches. Seven churches in the western portion of what we would consider ancient Turkey. And so the book of Revelation, in a way, is mainly a letter. But in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has a specific message for each of those seven churches. That might make us wonder, why would he share the message for one church with the other six? Why doesn't he just, John, that is, write seven different copies of the book with slightly different openings, slightly different introductions? That wouldn't have been unheard of in the ancient world. But the, but the reason is likely the most simple, that these messages, although they're targeted at individual churches, they are for the benefit of all the churches. The fact also that John is writing to seven churches probably means that these seven are representative of all of Jesus' church. Or to put it really simply, All seven messages are for us. And so we turn our attention to the first of these churches, the church in Ephesus. And Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus and his message then to us is to hold fast to your first love. Hold fast to your first love. Now, although there's slight differences, the outline, in a way, to each of these messages to the churches are the same. They, they follow a very similar pattern, at least. Jesus is revealed. Jesus knows. Jesus rebukes. And Jesus encourages. And so we're going to have a very similar outline for about seven messages here. So we turn to verse 1 again. We read to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We mentioned briefly last week, as worth noting, again, that these messages are not written directly to the churches. They're written to the angels. And and there are some competing interpretations of what that means, but the simplest is the most uncomfortable and the most foreign to our modern minds That's the one that's probably true, that there are angelic beings who stand as watchers or guardians over God's people. In the Old Testament, we see, like in the book of Daniel, that the archangel Michael stood over God's people. And now we're seeing that individual churches have angels over them also. Those angels have a measure of responsibility for the spiritual care of their territory. How does that work? I don't know. The Bible never tells us how that works. 
It gives us glimpses of this heavenly realm, this spiritual realm, in a few places. It does not give us the details. I don't think we're supposed to speculate. At a time when there was probably just one church in each of these cities, should we think that the angels roll as being over all the churches in Ephesus, but there just happens to be one? Or all the churches in the Ephesus metropolitan area, of which there's just one? Or, or should we think that each individual congregation has an angel over it? I don't know. I don't think we can know right now. But what I do think is clear is that Jesus is dealing with his churches. One way or another, his churches are represented by spiritual powers and authorities. Jesus operates no other way. The church is his body, after all, according to Paul. So if you are a so-called lone wolf Christian trying to follow Jesus on your own, beware. Because the only part you might be right about is the wolf part. Jesus works through his churches. He offers spiritual protection to his churches. Nothing in the book is written to individual Christians. And clearly the message to the angels, though, is intended for the churches and for our church's benefit, or it wouldn't be there for us to read. So let's keep moving. The main thing we notice from verse 1 is this description of the message giver. Jesus is writing, or dictating. Jesus is the one who's talking. And this is a continuation of Jesus speaking in in chapter 1. That's clear. But he describes himself this way, as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So that's directly from chapter 1. Each message to each church in these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, uses one of the descriptions of Jesus from chapter 1. One of the descriptions that is appropriate to that particular church's circumstances. Now, we kind of blew through those descriptions very quickly last week because as I told you then, we'd have good reasons to come back to them and discuss them in more detail. Well, here we are. And so in chapter 1, John sees this vision of Jesus holding seven stars, walking amidst golden lampstands. And Jesus himself explains that those symbols have meaning, and that those seven stars represented the seven angels over the seven churches, and the seven lamps represented the seven churches. But what does that mean, Jesus? I took from one scholar that in the Old Testament, the angels are likened to stars. And in Paul's letters to churches in this region, he describes the risen Jesus as far above every power and authority, referring to the spiritual powers. And here we see that Jesus is so exalted, so high, so 
powerful that he can hold those powers, those authorities in his hand. He is totally in charge of those beings, and by extension, he is totally in charge of the churches they represent. Jesus is powerful, and Jesus is in total control. And those facts cut two different ways, as we will see. The lampstands, Jesus says, are the churches. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's, there's a couple different lampstands in the Old Testament. The most famous of them is, of course, I assume you know, if you don't know, the, the, the lampstand in the tabernacle. Later, it was moved to the, the temple. It's described in Exodus chapter 25. And that lampstand was set on one side of the holy place inside the temple. And it gave light to the entire room, but especially it gave light upon the table of showbread. That was 12 loaves of bread that were changed out regularly and represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So they represented God's people. God's light would shine on his people. But the lamps in Revelation aren't representing God exactly or his light because they're the churches. They are the people. But there's another important lampstand that Liz read about this morning in Zechariah 4 uh, in a passage that's a bit reminiscent of this one. Uh, a prophet of God is, is getting a vision of the heavenly realms uh, from the hand of an angel. And Zechariah there sees a vision of a golden lampstand with seven lamps, and he wonders what it means, and the angel showing him tells him that it's a message for one of Israel's leaders, that he can succeed at the task that God had given him, which was to rebuild the temple, but not by his own strength or his power, only by the Spirit's empowerment. Could he do it? And I think that's the right direction. But look at what the, the lamps are lighting up. Rather than God lighting up his people, these lamps are illuminating what? God the Son. King Jesus. He is the one in the midst of them. So their light falls on him. Empowered by God's Spirit, Jesus' churches are tasked with illuminating Jesus in a dark world. So in setting up this message, Jesus wants to specifically identify himself to Ephesus as the one in total control of the churches and the one who each church has a responsibility to reveal. The job of a true church is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why does Jesus want to identify himself in those terms to this church? For that, we have to move forward. But that's the first point. Jesus identifies himself as the one in charge and the one chief concern of every church. Second, Jesus knows. Jesus wants to tell Ephesus what he knows. In verses 2 through 3, Jesus tells them that he knows several things about their circumstances. And that is really, really important to understand why. Look at what Jesus says he knows. First, he says 
He knows the Ephesians' works. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That, that is a beloved passage by Christians because it summarizes so much that is at the heart of the gospel, the good news, that salvation, our necessary, our needed rescue from the consequences of our own sin and our own evil comes about as the unearned, undeserved gift of God. That's what we call grace. The way we gain access to that grace is through faith, which is trust and belief in who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he tells us. We are not rescued from our sin on the basis of our good works. That's false religion. That's what paganism had taught, that you have to do X and Y and Z to appease the gods. That's what much of the Judaism of Jesus' day had begun to teach, that a person had to rigorously obey God's laws to get into heaven. And that's what many churches still teach, either implicitly or explicitly, that you have to be really good to get into heaven, or that you have to go through all the right rituals or sacraments to be okay with God. Or that you have to do this and abstain from that in order to be saved. That you have to give this much to this person in this way to be rescued. And all of those things are, quite frankly, damnable lies. But that doesn't mean that good works are wrong. Instead, a Christian's salvation should propel him or her to do good works, partly out of thankfulness, partly out of reverence, partly out of being transformed by God's Spirit to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And if you're more and more like Jesus Christ, you're going to act more and more like Jesus Christ. And apparently, the Ephesians had heeded Paul's teachings. Jesus saw that they did have works that were befitting a Christian community. Jesus knows their toil or their labor. It's a, it's a word that, that means generally work, but it, but it often seems to emphasize the burden and sometimes painful nature of work. So sometimes it can even refer to pain. The Christian life is not all roses and sunshine, is it? Sometimes it is. But if you were promised that everything would be easy and grand and wonderful in following Jesus, then you were maybe misled. Because following Jesus is work. It's laborious. There are times when it will be difficult, maybe very difficult, maybe even painful. Why? Well, 
this side of the fall, we finished a short series on Genesis just a, a few weeks ago, and on this side of the fall, we learned that work is itself difficult. It's hard. It's painful. Sometimes, though, following Jesus will be opposed or come with trying consequences. The world will think that we're silly, ridiculous, foolish. Sometimes people may reject us, even family and friends. They might think we've gone a little bit nuts. Imagine you lived in Germany in the run-up to the Third Reich. The Nazi party was sadly attractive to many Germans, including many Germans who put themselves into the category of Christian. And eventually, the Nazis attempted to push the churches into a Nazi-supporting state church. Maybe some of those early votes for Nazi candidates were, were made in good faith. Maybe some of those people had no idea where the Nazi party was going or where they were going to take things. But then Hitler used his political muscle to elect a Nazi supporter over the German churches and used that muscle to get Nazis elected to many lower positions in the churches of Germany. And soon one major German church limited its membership to supposedly pure Germans, that, that is Aryans, and Christian pastors who had any Jewish descent were thrown out of the church, removed from the clergy. The Nazis were rapidly working to make German identity, support for Nazism, and membership in the German church. Identical categories. And in November 1933, Reinhold Krauss preached to 20,000 supposed Christians on the need to get rid of the Jewish Old Testament. To throw out the teachings of that famous rabbi, the Apostle Paul. They didn't want the whole Jesus they wanted a warrior Jesus, defending that was all that was good and right and German. And the crowds gave riotous support. Now, most churches did not ally themselves with that movement, but neither did most oppose that. Most tried this neat trick where they stayed somewhat in between and neutral. Opposing that movement was work. It was laborious. It was painful. It was costly. Some imperfect but brave souls lost their careers, like Karl Barth, and other imperfect but brave souls lost their lives, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So if you tell me about a time when you think in this glorious piece of history or this glorious place of history where following Jesus was easy, I'll tell you about a time of history you didn't know very well. The temptations to walk away from Jesus have been present in every time in history. And they come in very stealthy forms, 
following Jesus is work. It's why Jesus urged his disciples and would-be disciples to count the cost of discipleship, to count the cost of following him, lest they begin to follow him and turn back. Why would they do that if it was easy? Jesus knew also, these Ephesian Christians, their patient endurance. That endurance is this quality that is commended as necessary for Christians throughout the New Testament because life can be hard. Because the pressures to abandon following Christ can be intense and they can even come from people who claim to be his followers like in Nazi Germany. True Christians need great endurance in order to suffer. And it's done with patience because true Christians know that Jesus will return, that Jesus will judge, that Jesus will make all things right. This is just a temporary inconvenience. It's what Paul called in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, a light momentary affliction that is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When you are convinced by faith that what lies ahead is utterly gorgeous and wonderful and cannot be imagined no matter how bad things are, we wait with patience. And that last quality, this this quality of patient endurance is so important that Jesus brings it back up. In verse 3, he says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Life is hard for everyone at times, make no mistake, but, but the Christians in Ephesus endured hardships, not merely for being human, not merely for going through this difficult world, but for following Christ specifically, but they endured and they did not grow tired. In fact, the Ephesians had their own Nazi problem of sorts. Jesus knew that they could not bear with those who were evil, but tested those who called themselves apostles and were not, just like in 1933, just like today, so it was in the first century, there are false teachers and false professors of Christianity. And it takes discernment from Christ's spirit and a robust knowledge of Scripture to appraise these individuals' lives and their doctrine to see if they are faithful, to see if they are true. And those who fail the test have to be shut down and ignored. The Christians at Ephesus had done that. And all this Jesus knew. It brings to mind a passage that might be familiar to you at the beginning of the book of Exodus. There's this dire picture painted. The Egyptians had started to become threatened by the Hebrews that were living there in Egypt, uh, and, and their population had grown so large that they turned against these Hebrews and conscripted them into slavery. 
The Egyptian pharaoh, the king, hoped to degrade their population, to weaken them, but they kept growing in number. God's blessing was on them, even as the Egyptians made their lives more and more difficult. And so finally, the king issues a decree to kill all of the male children immediately after birth. Females can't reproduce on their own. They aren't a great threat to take up arms in rebellion, historically, and they might even be valuable to powerful men for bad reasons. It's a bleak picture. But here's how the second chapter of Exodus ends. During those days, many of the kings of Egypt died, and the peoples of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The idea, the idea that God knew, or, or that God remembered, it, it wasn't, a, a, in Hebrew thought, an idea of an intellectual knowledge as much as it was a relational type of knowledge. His knowledge meant that he was concerned, that he cared, that God's mind was involved in their situation. As trite as it can be sometimes when it's not serious, we do really appreciate it, don't we? When, when a friend or a loved one tells us they've been thinking about us, that matters. When it's believable, when we really believe they're present, that, that matters to us. Or when we know that everything is going on in my life is wrong, it's bad, it's a mess, and yet this person is with me. I got my buddy. I got my parent. I got my brother. I've got my neighbor. Whoever it is, I know they're with me. How much more is that true when there's someone who's powerful? It's, it's rare, right? But it's comforting in those rare moments when we see that our, our boss or our mayor, or our president, like actually really knows what we're going through and cares. Very rare. That's a good feeling, those glimpses we get of it once in a rare while. But Jesus, the one who is in total control of the universe, who holds the stars in his hands, is very much aware of the circumstances that his church in Ephesus is going through, their difficulties and their faithfulness. He knew it all. He was there. He was in the midst. He was walking in the midst of the lampstands. The God of the universe was not oblivious. He wasn't checked out. He was not far away. I don't know what today, what this year, what this decade is going to yet bring, but I don't think it's going to become suddenly easier to follow Jesus. But whatever you go through, whatever we go through, Jesus knows. He knows, and he's totally in control. He knows everything that is going on. And just as God knowing in Exodus was a prelude to him acting Jesus, knowing our circumstances, is a prelude to him acting. He is coming. He is coming. He came to judge Egypt, and he is coming to judge the world. Just hold on a while longer. Jesus knows. But, 
I have this against you, said Jesus. Those are words that no Christian wants to hear. If we're honest, though, we know that there's something Jesus could put in the bucket of things I have against them. There are things in the bucket of Jesus has this against gateway. And with four short words, at least it's four short words in Greek, Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus. For what? What does Jesus have against the Christians in Ephesus that you have abandoned the love you had at first? And this problem, even though it's stated in a few verses, becomes the center of this passage. What does that mean? Many translations, maybe yours if you're not reading uh, the English standard that we tend to use here, uh, say that they abandoned their first love which is actually a very literal translation. But it can be deceptive because in English, we tend to think of your first love as something like that first girl or that first guy you fell for, especially if you fell for them really hard. And so that that leads many people to interpret this verse to mean something like the Christians in Ephesus had abandoned Jesus. That Jesus was their first love, their greatest and chief love, and they'd walked away from him. But I, I don't think that that can be what this means because after all, these, these Christians in Ephesus, they seem pretty faithful, don't they? They have endured a lot of pain for following Jesus and they're commended for it. That's not the profile of someone who's abandoned Jesus. The reason for the rebuke can be seen in looking around the passage because Look, the, the remedy, Jesus says, the remedy for this problem of abandoning their first love is to do the works you did at first. So the first love has something to do with the first works. What works were those? Well, what's the job of a lampstand? The work of a lampstand is to give light to something. And what were the lampstands in Revelation 1 doing? They were illuminating Jesus. And that's the picture that Jesus uses to introduce himself to Ephesus. And so the reason for Jesus' rebuke is this. The Ephesians have stood fast in their faith. They have not compromised in their integrity. But they have stopped illuminating Jesus to their world. They have stopped being a witness to Jesus in their city their neighborhoods, in their guilds, in their marketplaces. The church exists, but it's not doing the most important work of any Jesus, which is revealing Jesus to the world. Jesus himself predicted this. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about some end time stuff, but I think he's and I've mentioned this before, I think he's terribly misinterpreted. We talked about this, in fact, a little bit over the Christmas season, because while Jesus does talk about his return in Matthew 24, a lot of that passage is really calming the nerves of his disciples, that a lot of things are going to go wrong in this world. And that doesn't mean that the end is here yet. Don't be looking for doomsday prophecy around every news story. 
every earthquake you hear about, every war you hear about. Funny how we've twisted that into every earthquake and every war tells us that Jesus is going to be here next week. But he says something in verses 9 through 12 of Matthew 24 that resonates with much of the book of Revelation. He says there, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Toil and trial? Check. Suffering for Jesus' name? Check. False teachers? Check. The need to endure? Check. But also the love of many will grow cold in the waiting. And yet the gospel will be proclaimed. The love of many will grow cold, but not the love of all. The gospel must be made known. It will be made known. And only after it's been made known to all nations can the end come. In a word, the one thing that the church in Ephesus was missing was evangelism. Evangelism sometimes gets a bad rap, but the word literally means the proclamation of good news. It's not megaphones and bullhorns. It's not insults. It's definitely not political intrigue and coercion. It's revealing Jesus Christ. It's speaking of who he is and what he has done so that others might hear and believe and be rescued from their evil the same way we were rescued from our evil. As I think about our church, I wonder if we might hear a similar message from Jesus. I've seen many of us endure challenges to our faith individually and collectively. We have successfully rooted out a lot of false teaching from one side or from the other. We have kept our doctrine pure. But are we doing job number one? Are we maintaining our first love? Are we illuminating Jesus in our world? Are we revealing him? If you've gone through our membership course in more recent years, you might remember that in our, what's usually our final session, we, we talk about the mission of any biblical church being to reveal Jesus and to revel in Jesus. That is, we are, we are called to make him known and we're called to delight in him. But I've thought many times about encouraging us to swap out uh, love, live, serve with something like to reveal and to revel. But at least we've begun teaching that the role of the church 
exists in that framework, which comes directly from Ephesians chapter 3, by the way. As we hope to build a culture of evangelism and discipleship. Undoubtedly, the pandemic took, the toll, took its toll, but you know, the, the elders, were, were, we were gearing up for a big push in evangelism just as the pandemic hit. When I, when I first came to Gateway, I noticed that evangelism was a, was a weakness for us here. And we tried to make a push, but it seemed almost like we weren't ready for it. We were too immature. And so we focused on discipleship, and I think we built a, a good culture of discipleship, building into one another for the sake of following Jesus. And as we discipled well, we began to push into prayer. As we developed a more robust prayer pattern as a church, it seemed like the time was right to try again. And we had a culture that could disciple new believers, and we were growing in our own maturity about the need to be faithful in evangelism. And we were praying, which is a necessary step because the power of evangelism comes from God, the lamps of the churches, as spirit-empowered witnesses to Jesus. And so all the pieces were in place, and then the world closed down. But brothers and sisters, there can be no excuses. We must make Jesus known. It's not simply enough to endure the feeling of being marginalized by culture or taking our occasional lumps, but not wanting to stir the pot too much. People are dying. Not, not physical death, as, as bad as that is, but spiritual death. They have no spiritual vitality. They are zombies. They are the, the living dead. They have the appearances of life, but there is no connection to the giver of life because it's been severed by sin. And we're no different. We're no better. We were at one time cut off from God and his life, just like our neighbors, just like our co-workers and our friends and our family. But we heard the good news. We believed and we were saved, not because we were good, but because Jesus was good. And we're not so good now, but we live because he remains good forever. Why would we keep that light to ourselves? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? You, collectively, you plural, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Or do people light a lamp and put it under a basket? No, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And let's note, Jesus is not talking about America. He's talking about himself. The city on the hill is his church illuminating him. He was not made to be hidden. To love Jesus is to make him known. And that's the job of the church. Yes, it's the job of individual Christians because individual Christians make up the church, but it's important to remember that this is a church task. We can't do it properly as mere individuals. That would give people a distorted picture of who Jesus is. Because part of the glories of Jesus is that all these strange body parts, or the old term members, working together as part of the same organism. If an alien came to earth and saw a human being, 
wouldn't that alien think that we are a strange conglomerate of parts? We'd, we'd probably think the same of the alien. We're used to our bodies, but they're composed of lots of weird bits, if we're honest. And yet when the fingers and the ears and the nose and the toes all work together for a single purpose, our body flourishes. And so it is with Christ's church. We are made to be together. Some of us talk funny. Some of us look funny. Some of us act funny. Some of us smell funny. And Jesus put us all together in one body. What I mean is this. One of you is, is going to speak to a coworker who's going to then meet someone in your small group, your growth group, and then is going to hear a sermon, and, and then is going to do a Bible study with a, a one-on-one with another Christian, and then they're going to see the compassion lived out, Christian compassion lived out in the life of another member. Oh, well, several other members are praying fervently for that person, unbeknownst to them, maybe. And then that coworker is going to become a Christian. And every one of us will have played a part in that transformation. That's not prophecy, I don't think. It's just an example. But we must be about making Jesus known. You might protest, I'm a hand, I'm not a mouth. Okay, maybe so. But you know what? Sometimes I carry things in my mouth, and sometimes I communicate with my hands. Every member has things they do best, but we are all capable of doing many different things. You know when I stick a pen in my mouth? It's when my hands are full, and yet I still need to keep track of that pen. You know when I communicate with my hands? When I'm too far away to be heard, or when my throat is too sore to speak, or when my mouth is already full of food. In other words, sometimes the other parts of the body can't do what needs to be done, and so we improvise. Sometimes the little toe has to reach up and flick the light switch on so that someone can see Jesus. So church, what's it going to be? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you hear Jesus' warning? Usually when the Bible speaks of God coming, that's bad things. That's bad news. Because usually the language of God coming in Scripture is language of him coming in judgment. And here Jesus is warning Ephesus that he might come and judge them and remove the church of Ephesus. As I looked on Google Maps at the area around the ruins of ancient Ephesus, I think I found more ruins of ancient churches than living churches. That number was two, the the two we prayed for this morning. In fact, in the exact area of ancient Ephesus, the boundaries where that city lay, there would appear to be, I believe, no churches. 
Now, Turkey is run by a very weak man, despite what you might hear. He's a coward. He's afraid of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the government does not exactly rule out the welcome mat to Christianity these days. In fact, the ministry Open Doors labeled President Erdogan of Turkey as one of the persecutors of the year for 2023. Not sure if that's how we should be <laughs> doling out the awards, but um, I think it's the point across. And they gave him that ignoble distinction for pushing an Islamic nationalist agenda with a political party that believes that to be Turkish is to be Muslim. And to be Muslim is to be Turkish. So it's possible there are maybe more churches there in Ephesus and the nearby city that took its place that just have no online presence for the sake of safety or for the lack of resources. But it could also be that the light went out. We've crossed the threshold of 15 years as a church, but will we be here for another 15 what about 150? If we're going to be here, then let's not abandon our first love. Jesus gives an encouragement, though. He, he, he mentions one good thing about Ephesus, namely that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which he does also. The, the Nicolaitans are probably a category of false teachers, and so this praise is an extension of verse 2. But he calls them out by name, so obviously they're important, but I'm going to leave them for another day because they come back up. And as we get a little bit more details about these individuals, we will be able to speak about them more specifically. But I do wonder if Jesus brings them up here because of what his final encouragement is. To the one who conquers, I grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers is the one who, Nicoton, uh, both conquer and, and Nicolaitans have this Nico opening. It's where we get this little known brand called Nike. Um, and, and so uh, the message may be, don't fall in with the Nicolaitans, but Nikkei, conquer. To conquer does not mean to take up the sword, by the way. After all, Jesus said that all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Instead, conquering, especially in the book of Revelation, is to defeat the world the way that Jesus defeated the world. By dying to its values, by dying to its cravings, and enduring its evils faithfully even as Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and laid down his life, our victory is a victory of surrender. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
That's exactly what Jesus promises here to the one who overcomes this world. That person will taste the sweet fruit of the tree of life. The Garden of Eden may be gone, as we heard at the end of last year as we worked through Genesis, but the paradise of God endures. And growing in God's paradise is a tree whose fruit will nourish his children forever. Jesus isn't just offering any old life by way of death. He's offering a return to Eden, a return to something we thought was lost forever, a place where we can commune with God and live in his perfect peace and plenty forever. If we overcome, and part of overcoming, part of conquering, part of not giving in to this world's values and orders is making Jesus known, is revealing him, especially when it's difficult especially when it's unwelcome, especially when it is unpopular. Let's not abandon our first love. Let us not let our light go out. And let's pray to that end. Father, we uh, thank you for your graciousness in saving us. Thank you for your graciousness in calling us to you to be your people, a kingdom of priests. Thank you for persevering with us through our unfaithfulness to you. Father, would you empower us by your Spirit as you have promised to be bold, witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ, to not shirk back, to not cover that light in a basket, but to set that light up on a table, to to be a city on a hill, to be the hands and feet and the mouthpiece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might reveal him that the revelation of Jesus Christ might be our priority and our hope, and our dream, and our goal. That our light might not go out, that we might conquer, that we might endure with you this world so that we might enjoy with you the fruit of the tree of life. Help us to be faithful to make much of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.